Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a new small group study of the great Old Testament book, Isaiah. They don't call it a major prophet for nothing, because it's a big one. And uh, I wanted to preach a message this morning that I hope will motivate all of us to be a part of what has the potential to be a life-changing encounter with God through His Word. And so let me pray, and then we'll get after it. Father, thank you for being a holy and awesome God. And I feel this morning as we approach this passage, the premier passage on holiness in your word, that we are truly treading on holy ground. And Father, I've put myself in a position where I'm preaching beyond my experience, and I humbly admit that before you, that I don't even begin to understand or relate to what Isaiah experienced here in this passage. But I pray that your spirit would come and use this passage to draw each of us closer to you, and that somehow, in some way, we would encounter you in a similar way. So that we could be truly broken over our sinfulness, that we would be able to experience your forgiveness, and that we would be truly useful to you for your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah is often referred to as the Prince of Prophets. Now, prophets served a special role in the history of the nation of Israel. Whenever Israel would wander off away from the Lord and compromise their commitment to their God and rebel against him, he would raise up a messenger to call them back to himself. They were called prophets. And the prophets would expose the nation's sins and plead with them to repent, to to avert the coming judgment of God. And they were really a mouthpiece for God. They spoke on God's behalf and their favorite line was, Thus says the Lord. Their ministry was twofold. Primarily, they focused on the present situation. And they foretold the truth of God. Secondarily, they would focus on the future, where they would foretell the truth of God. And so we need to keep that in mind as we study a prophecy or a prophetic book that there's two things going on all at the same time. There's, there's foretelling where the prophet is speaking to that present situation, but there's also foretelling where he's speaking of the future. Not only the future coming of Christ, his first coming, but also his second coming. Well, the book of Isaiah is a Holy Spirit-inspired account of the prophetic ministry of Isaiah to the nation of Judah. If you remember, after Solomon... The nation split in two. Ten of the tribes went north and two tribes stayed south. That was Judah and Benjamin. And so Isaiah courageously confronted Judah regarding their rebellion against God and called them to repentance. And he warned them if they didn't repent, they would be invaded and taken into exile by the Babylonians, just like the Assyrians would do to Israel in the north. And yet in the midst of his warnings of God's impending doom, he comforted them 
with God's promises to save them and to restore them through the coming of the Messiah. And so you have a a beautiful blend of condemnation and consolation in this great book. In fact, if you want to outline the entire book, and your small group leader, I'm sure, will get into this. But chapters 1 through 39 talk about condemnation. And chapters 40 to 66 talk about consolation. By the way, 66 chapters, you better start reading. Okay? Because you're going to need all, the t- all this in these next two weeks to have it read as we try to read through whatever book we're studying ahead of time before we launch into our study. So start reading today, okay? Knock off maybe five chapters a day, you'll make it. The interesting thing about Isaiah, I don't know if that 66 chapters kind of caught your mind, but Isaiah is really a Bible within a Bible. How many chapters are there in the Bible? Are books in the Bible? 66. How many chapters in Isaiah? 66. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus primarily on man's sinfulness and the righteous, holy judgment of God, which is really the basic theme of the 39 books of the Old Testament. The next 27 chapters in Isaiah are like the 27 books of the New Testament in that they stress God's glory and redeeming grace through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so really, it's a simple way to remember the big picture of the book of Isaiah. Just think of the Bible. 66 books, 66 chapters, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. 39 talking about condemnation, 27 talking about consolation. Isaiah means the salvation of the Lord. Kind of a cool name, huh? And that really is unique in that it is the theme of the book. That's the theme of the entire book. His name, Isaiah, salvation is of the Lord, is the theme of the book. And unlike the other major prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah didn't begin his book with an account of his call to ministry. That's where they typically would start. Well, God called me so that I could be the prophet. Instead, Isaiah started by giving a graphic description of how Judah had violated the holiness of God. Turn back to the beginning of this book, just a few chapters earlier. Isaiah chapter 1. And notice how he begins this book. Isaiah 1.1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here is what he saw. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, and they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know my people, do not understand. In other words, they're my sons, and they don't even recognize me as their father anymore. That's how far away they've gone. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. Key phrase. Note that. They have turned away from Him. And then if that wasn't bad enough, listen to his description of sin. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Pretty disgusting description. But that's what the Bible says about sin. Move on to chapter 5. Here in chapter 5, Isaiah uses a different analogy. No longer is it a father and son analogy. Now it is a vineyard 
and the vine dresser. And of course, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. It says, let me sing now for my well-beloved the song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill and he dug it all around, removing its stones and planted it with the choicest vine and he built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. In other words, God planted a vineyard. Who was it? The nation of Israel. And he took care of it and he provided everything it needed. And he expected that it would produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? I did everything I could. Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and, I will be con- and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled to the ground. And I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. Jump up to verse 24. After going through six woes or six specific sins that that uh, Isaiah lists here in chapter 5. He climaxes here, verse 24, Therefore, in light of all these sins that you are committing, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rod and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the, what? The Holy One of Israel. Key phrase, note that. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people and he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down and the mountains quaked and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. Kind of like a dog, a master whistles for a dog. Come here, boy. Come here, Babylon. Come take my vineyard over. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariots wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness and its roars like a young lion. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. Talking about Babylon coming, coming as a roaring lion to pounce upon Judah and devour it and take it off into exile. Verse 30, and it shall growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. And there you have the introduction to the book of Isaiah. And it looks to me like a job for a prophet. What do you think? Who would God raise up and send to pierce the spiritual darkness of Judah with the holy light of his word? Isaiah got the call. The nation was in a bad spot, and so God called Isaiah from the bullpen, as it were, to throw some heat to the nation of Judah. And here in chapter 6, Isaiah described his call to ministry. And like every prophet, God had to first prepare him for the job. 
In the case of Isaiah, God prepared him by giving him a vision of his majestic holiness that overwhelmed him with a sense of his own sinfulness. Isaiah was never the same after this life-changing encounter with God. In this account, we can see four elements of a life-changing encounter with God. Four stages, if you will. What does it look like? What does a life-changing encounter with God look like? How can we have a similar encounter with God? Well, we're going to see this morning as we look at these 13 verses. And I've just broken them up into four parts or four elements or four stages of a life-changing encounter with God. And I'm going to give them to you up front. And they're just four words. And this will form the outline for our message. The first is holiness. Holiness. Verses 1 through 4. The second word is brokenness. Brokenness. Verse 5. The third element is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Verses 6 and 7. And then finally, the fourth element or fourth stage of a life-changing encounter with God is usefulness. Usefulness, verses 8 through 13. Let's look first of all at holiness, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, that was his way of giving us a time frame in which God called him into ministry. Uzziah had reigned for half a century, over 50 years. And during his reign, the nation of Judah had experienced great prosperity and great success and security and unity. And he really had brought the greatest days since the reign of David and Solomon. And unfortunately, it went to his head. And he got proud. And it did something that ultimately led to his death. You say, what was that? Well, I won't take time, the time to read it with you. But you can just write down Second Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, which talks about Chronicles, Chronicles his life and the early days of his life when he, all, everything he touched turned to gold as it were and he honored the Lord and, and the Lord blessed his, ministry, or blessed his reign as king. But then in the middle of the chapter, we see him make a fatal error to commit a fatal sin. And that he decided that since he was the king, of course, he could do whatever he wanted. And so one day he went to the temple and he entered into the holy place to burn incense on the altar. Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, who are the only people allowed to go into the holy place to offer anything to the Lord? The priests and the Levites. And so when the priests saw what he was about to do, they confronted him. Said, you can't do that. I know Uzziah was livid. I mean, who do you think you are? To tell me what I can or cannot do. I'm the king. And while he's raging against him. In the very moment. Leprosy broke out on his forehead. Talk about. Swift judgment from God. And obviously as the Levites saw that. And the priests saw that. As leprosy just broke forth on his face. They immediately ushered him out of the temple. Because he was unclean. And Uzziah remained a leper. Until the day he died. All because he violated God's, what? Holiness. In fact, Proverbs, or excuse me, uh, 2 Chronicles 
chapter 26, the last verse, talks about how Isaiah wrote down all the events of Uzziah's life. Kind of kept the record, wrote the biography, if you will, of Uzziah. And so Isaiah was well acquainted with King Uzziah's life and death and the devastating consequences of foolishly infringing on God's holiness. And so it's no wonder that that Isaiah responded the way he did when he came face to face with the holy king of kings. Because he had firsthand knowledge of what happens if you're not careful in the presence of a holy God. It says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Now, Isaiah may have had this experience in the literal temple in Jerusalem, but most likely it was a vision where he was taken up into heaven itself. And he says, I saw the Lord. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I thought the Bible says that no one can see the Lord and live. A lot of verses talk about that. Exodus thirty-three eighteen. 18. John 1.18, 1 Timothy 6.16, 1 John 4.12 says no man has ever seen God or can ever see God. Obviously, he's a spirit. You say, so who did Jesus see? Or excuse me, who did Isaiah see? I gave the answer. Who did Isaiah see? Huh? What do you think? Well, according to John, in John chapter 12, interesting verse here, Isaiah saw Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 39. It says, For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive them, see, perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. That's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 41, watch this. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who is he speaking of? Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus is the visible essence of God. It's it's God in human form. It's the visible part of God. And so it says he saw the Lord. And everything about what he saw was designed to show Isaiah the transcendent holiness of God. It says the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Lofty and exalted, high up with a train of his robe filling the temple. So here's God seated on a throne in the place of sovereign authority over heaven and earth. And the throne was high and lifted up to show that God is far above his creatures. And he was wearing this robe that was so long, the train, it says, it just filled the whole temple. Imagine somebody, you know, a bride coming down the aisle here at Lakeside and and her, her train was so long that it just kind of filled the whole place. It was all over the place. That's kind of the picture here. It's everywhere. Again, just displaying his majesty and his grandeur. Verse 2, it says, Seraphim stood above him. This was a group of holy angels only mentioned here. And literally their title, Seraphim, means burning ones. And notice it says, they each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Just kind of put that, get a picture in your mind's eye of what that might look like. That here were these angels with six wings, two were covering their feet. If you remember when Moses saw the burning bush, what did God say? 
take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is what? Holy ground. So it had something to do with the holiness of their feet. It had to be covered. And it says there was two to cover their face. So even angels in the presence of God can't look on His glory. Or they would be completely consumed. And so in the same way, remember uh, uh, Moses wanted to say, he said, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, I'm going to put you over here in this little rock here, in this little crevice, and, and, and I'm going to put my hand over you when I walk by, and then I'm going to let you see my backside. Because no man can see me and live. And so they covered their face. And it said in two wings, they used to hover. They, they flew. And you get the idea here is, you know, you get a picture of a little hummingbird. You know, you ever seen a hummingbird? Those things are cool. They just kind of hover there. And then all of a sudden, they dart off. Then they come darting back. They go again. And you think about these guys, and they were probably, that, that was a symbol of that they were ready for God to tell them to do anything. They were ready to serve him at a moment's notice, at his beck and call. He would dispatch them, and they would go, and then he'd come back. Verse 3, he goes on, he says, One called out to another. So they were shouting antiphonally. How can I say that? They were, they were shouting back and forth to one another. And what were they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The Jews use repetition. To emphasize something, that's the way they did it in those days. It was like underlining something or highlighting something or hitting bold on your computer to make it stand out. And so what was going on here in the text is highlighting and emphasizing the supreme importance of God's holiness. That that this is super important. And the seraphim were exalting the holiness of God to the highest possible measure that he was not just once holy, not just twice holy, but he was three times holy. The word holy, kadosh in the Hebrew and hagias in the Greek, literally means to cut or separate. It's important. Holy means to cut or separate. In other words, to be holy means to be separate from something and set apart from something. And we know that when we say God is holy, we know that he's set apart from sin. That's usually the first thing that comes to our minds. But it also means that he's set apart from us. And there's really, when you think of God's holiness, there's two aspects. First of all, he's set apart from creation. And secondly, he's set apart from corruption. One aspect is his absolute majesty, and the other is his absolute purity. One is his uniqueness or otherness, and one is his righteousness. And so we understand that God is holy, he's set apart from creation. That he's profoundly different From us. He's completely distinct from us. He's absolutely other than us. And so holiness signifies his absolute incomparability. His absolute inapproachability. His transcendent majesty that he is beyond us. He's infinitely above us. And there's this infinite distance that separates him from us. But it also means that he's set apart from corruption. Where he's absolutely free from anything wicked or evil. He's too pure to even look at evil, let alone to do it. 
He only and always does what is right. He can never do anything wrong. He's untouched or unstained by sin. He's perfectly pure. He cannot be tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. He cannot tolerate any kind of sin or evil in his presence. He hates it, and he must punish it. That's holiness. And Isaiah 6 is considered by most Bible scholars as the premier passage on God's holiness in the entire Bible. We're on holy ground. And this is really the one truth that God has revealed about himself more than any other truth. More clearly, more frequently does he mention the word holy in association with himself than any other attribute. And some theologians have concluded that holiness is the single most important attribute of God. In fact, some have even suggested that it isn't just one of many attributes, but it is the attribute, the supreme attribute, the sum of all his attributes, the attribute of attributes, or as Stephen Charnock said, the crown of all God's attributes. I like how John MacArthur said it in his book on God. He said this, quote, Holiness is arguably the most significant of all God's attributes. When the angels worship in heaven, they don't say eternal, eternal, eternal. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Wise, wise, wise. Or mighty, mighty, mighty. They say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And if you look at Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. A vision that John had of the end times and eternity. Guess what the angels are still saying? Holy, holy, holy. They were saying it way back in Isaiah's day. They're saying it right now. And they're saying it. In the future. And so perpetually, the angels are praying and they'll never, praising God and never stop saying day after day, year after year, century after century, forever and ever and ever, we're going to have an opportunity to hear that and sing along with them. Holy, holy, holy. Look at verse 4. It says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out where the temple was filling with smoke. Literally, the door sockets. What is talking about there? The doorways. Well, what's the big deal about a doorway? Well, if you've ever been through an earthquake, you know what's important about a doorway, right? You go to the doorway because that's typically the strongest part of the house, right? With the most wood and the, it's going to keep the roof from falling in on you. And so this thundering praise of the angelic voices was so loud, it was so powerful that it caused even the doorpost to rattle. And all the shaking and all the smoking is simply representative of the the holy fire of God's presence. And so Isaiah saw the holiness of God and it made a profound impact on his life and it really set the tone for his ministry. In fact, he stressed the theme of God's holiness throughout his book. That phrase I kept noting early on, the Holy One of Israel, used it 26 times in this book. It's only found five other places in the the Old Testament. So you can see that this had a, a riveting effect on him. So the first stage in a life changing encounter with God is coming face to face with his holiness. Secondly, it's brokenness. It's brokenness. Look at verse 5. Then I said, woe 
is me, for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That word woe, that's not a good word. That's a bad word. That was a word that was used by prophets to pronounce judgment on people. In fact, you look back in chapter 5 and six times Isaiah says, Woe to you, 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 woe to you. That was not good news. And now Isaiah says, Woe to me. Right? He applies this this pronouncement of judgment, this curse upon himself. He's the prophet. He's supposed to be cursing others. Now he's cursing himself. Why? He says, for I'm ruined. Undone, unraveled. Literally, I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm being annihilated. I'm being destroyed. Why? Why did he feel that way? He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And so this vision of God's holiness produced in Isaiah this profound conviction of his own sinfulness. And he was overwhelmed with a, with a painful awareness of his own sin. Now, this is ironic in that Isaiah was convicted about his mouth. That was his bread and butter as a prophet, wasn't it? That's how he made his living. That was his, his duty, his job, to communicate God's truth to the nation of Israel through his mouth He was God's mouthpiece to speak of God's holiness, but he realized that he had an unholy mouth. And yet he was realizing that while he may have preached about God's holiness and believed in God's holiness, he had never actually experienced it firsthand the way he was now. And so for the first time in his life, it appears that he saw God for who he really was, and consequently, for the first time in his life, he saw himself for who he really is. And he was deeply crushed and convicted by his utter filthiness, his utter unworthiness. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. We already knew that, but now he's including himself in the the wrath of God there. He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, if, if I saw him, that means he saw me. And I'm a dead man. And this is typical of biblical accounts of men who have come face to face with God. You can see some of these great accounts. Judges chapter 13, verse 22. Judges chapter 13, verse 22. This is Samson's parents. And Manoah, it says, appeared. Oh, excuse me, the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah. This is Judges 13, 21. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And so Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. So he comes home and he says, honey, I saw God today. We're going to die. We're dead. We're dead meat. How about Job? In Job 42, verse 6, 
when he saw the glory of God and God revealed himself in creation to Job, what did Job, what was Job's initial reaction? He says, I repent in dust and ashes. Ezekiel, another major prophet, describes this incredible vision of God's glory in Ezekiel chapter 1. Verse 28, he says, The appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. How about Peter in Luke 5, verse 8? They just went out fishing, no big deal, right? And... uh Hadn't caught anything, and Jesus says, hey, why don't you guys let the net down on the other side? And they say, hey, we've been doing this all night. What do you know about fishing, right? It says when they did this, they closed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he goes, Jesus, pulled out the contract. Let's go into business together. This is a good deal, man. You and me, man. We make a great team. Make a lot of money. So when Simon Peter saw, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. See, John in Revelation, when he saw the vision of the exalted Lamb of God, Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, John, relax. It's okay. You're not going to die. See, this is what always happens when someone sees God for who he really is that they see themselves for who they really are. And we stop comparing ourselves to the standard of everyone else. In a sinful world, it doesn't make us look that bad. We don't feel so bad hanging around with all of us, a bunch of us sinners, right? Kind of feel okay. Skunks, I don't think they mind spending time with each other. Or pigs, they all kind of seem to enjoy one another. But then when we start comparing ourselves to who the standard is, and that is the holiness of God, we become painfully aware of how far, far short we fall. And we see his greatness, and then we're dealing with our grossness. And we see his awesomeness, and then we're left to deal with our awfulness, and we see his worthiness, and we see our wretchedness, and we see his holiness, and we see our hideousness. You know, when I consider these illustrations of people in the Bible, I can't help but think of the trend in the church today to provide an upbeat, casual atmosphere where people feel right at home, which is such a big deal in the church today. I just got a little flyer in the mail this week, as a matter of fact, a church in the area saying, hey, come, we've got an upbeat, casual atmosphere. You know, it makes you feel right at home. You know, that works. That works. Why? Because that's what people are looking for, aren't they? People want to come and feel good. They want to have a good feel-good experience and leave all happy and encouraged. Well, naturally, there are times when we 
can and should leave church upbeat and encouraged by our time in the Word, our time in worship, the fellowship. It's just enjoyable. But let's face it, sometimes coming to church can be a devastating experience. Because when you talk about sin, things get pretty ugly. And you got to deal with stuff in your life. I heard a pastor mention that that he never mentions sin because that's not what people want to hear and that discourages them. And so we don't want to discourage our people. We want to build them up every Sunday so they go out feeling good. So we don't mention sin. Beloved, we're not going to always feel good about ourselves when we leave here on Sunday mornings. And if you're looking to always feel good when you leave, you might need to be looking for another church because... That's not what we're about. I mean, I trust that you're encouraged. I trust that you're challenged. Every time you come here, my goal is not to hammer you all the time. It's to help you. It's to give you hope and encouragement to live your lives for Christ. But beloved, if we're truly coming into the presence of God like Isaiah did, it can be a painful experience. But beloved, remember, a helpful experience. A helpful experience in the long run. And we can draw encouragement from this story that, like Isaiah, God will never leave us in a shattered state. We might feel like we're coming apart, coming apart at the seams, but he doesn't allow us to leave here like that. Because we see how God responded to Isaiah's broken and contrite confession with cleansing. And that's the third element of a life-changing encounter with God. It's forgiveness. Forgiveness. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Can you imagine that? And he says, he touched my mouth with it. I mean, that's kind of the most, that's the most sensitive part of your whole body, isn't it? your lips. You think about it, next time you go out and grill something on your barbecue, reaching in there and pulling out one of those hot coals, you know, and going like, oh, check this out. Put it up to your lip and see what happens. I mean, this is, this is painful, but it was purifying because God was putting Isaiah back together again. It was like Isaiah had fallen off the wall, right? Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall, and there was no one to put him back together again. Well, thankfully, Isaiah may have fallen off the wall, but there was someone there waiting to catch him and put him back together, and that was God. And it's interesting, notice what it says, he touched my mouth with it, and it said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is what? Forgiven. And this became a, 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 a theme throughout Isaiah's prophecy. Beautiful. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. In other words, calling them to repent and God will forgive. How about Isaiah forty? 43, verse 25. I just want to show you how beautiful this call to forgiveness is. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You say, how can an omniscient God forget? Well, I don't think he forgets. He just chooses not to hold them against us. Isaiah 44, 22. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 
Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 57, verse 15 talks about... I'll just read it. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirits in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In other words, yeah, we're sinful. But if we're broken about our sinfulness, God will come and revive us and restore us and forgive us and renew us. So having responded to God's holiness with a broken and contrite heart and having confessed his sin and experienced God's cleansing, now Isaiah was finally ready To tell Judah about a holy God who not only judges sin, but also forgives sin to those who repent and turn back to him. And this is the final step or stage or element of a life-changing encounter with God, and that's usefulness. Usefulness. Look at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. When I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And so God was looking for someone to warn Judah of the judgment to come if they didn't repent. And so Isaiah humbly responded to God's call. And God commissioned him to serve him as a prophet. And you can see there's no trace at all of any self-confidence, any self-righteousness in this prophet's tone. I imagine he said something, well, God, I'm available if uh, by chance there might be a possibility you could maybe use me. And notice what he says. He said, go and tell his people. Go and tell his people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of his people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. You say, well, that's all, what's that all talking about? You're going, well, you can just tell from the, how it sounds. It's not good, is it? <laughs> not good news. And these were not very encouraging words for a young preacher at the beginning of his ministry. Because in essence, what God's saying is, oh, by the way, no one's going to listen to you. You're just going to make them mad. And make them rebel even more against the truth. And so God warned Isaiah that his message was going to be rejected and his ministry would have a blinding effect and a deafening effect and a hardening effect on the people. And then I can appreciate Isaiah's natural question. Verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? (laughs) How long is this going to last? How long do I got to deal with this? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So God told him that his ministry would last until his judgment fell. And that Judah was taken off and exiled by the Babylonians. And at this point, I wonder if Isaiah was having second thoughts about volunteering for this job. But I think it's a good example for all of us to remember that God has called us to proclaim his word, no matter how people respond to it. 
And the true measure of success in ministry is not outward results, but faithfulness to the Lord and His Word. God calls us to be faithful, not fruitful. And we need to focus on being faithful and leave the results to Him. Amen? And that's what Isaiah did. He was obedient to God's call. He ministered through the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. According to tradition, Hezekiah's ungodly successor, Manasseh, killed Isaiah by sawing him in half. How's that for a way to die? After being faithful to the Lord all those years? I'll just cut you in half. Look at verse 13, though. There's a ray of hope, a glimmer of hope at the end of this difficult call. He says, yet there will be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so lest Isaiah feel like a total failure, God encouraged him with the promise that a remnant would survive. And he used the illustration of a stump after you cut a tree down. The stump's there and eventually shoots will begin to emerge and will eventually sprout back to life. Obviously, he's talking about the nation of Israel, right? And in the midst of a seemingly grim and pointless mission, God injects a ray of hope, and that hope would ultimately be realized in who? Jesus Christ. The servant of the Lord who would die to provide salvation for sinners and one day return to earth to establish his glorious kingdom. There's a lot going on in that little stump illustration. I think it's really neat. God honored Isaiah by revealing to him more messianic prophecy than anyone else in the Old Testament. And that's why he's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. He's mentioned by name in the New Testament 21 times. In fact, Isaiah 53, that great psalm about the suffering servant, great chapter about the suffering servant, that alone is quoted or alluded to at least 85 times in the New Testament. It's not a bad consolation for such a difficult call. And God honored Isaiah for his faithfulness by allowing him to be the recipient of, of more prophecy, more future knowledge of the coming of Christ than anyone who's ever lived. God has called all of us to proclaim the message of salvation to a lost world. But like Isaiah, God must work in us before he can work through us. And in order for us to be an effective channel of God's penetrating, piercing word, that word must pierce our own hearts. It must penetrate into our own consciences that the power of God's word be felt in our life first. We must understand that, that we will never be greatly used by God until we're deeply broken by God. And if we're to be useful to God, we need a life-changing encounter with God like the one Isaiah had. How about you? Have you ever, ever had an experience like this? Have you ever been so overwhelmed with the crushing reality of God's holiness to the point where you were overcome with your utter sinfulness? And that you responded in brokenness and, and received God's forgiveness and then offered up yourself 
for him to use you? See, there's a vital link here between our holiness and our usefulness. Because God only uses clean instruments. I love the word of counsel that Robert Murray McShane gave to a young man who was about to be ordained for the ministry. He said this, quote, How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword. His instrument, I trust, a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure according to the purity and perfection of the instrument will be the success. And then he said this, it's not great talents God blesses, but a great likeness to Christ. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Let's pray. Father, we look into your holiness this morning and we shudder because we know that we can't even begin to comprehend how awesome it is. But I pray that you would begin to open up our eyes and our heart to understand what you meant when you said, be holy for I am holy. And God, I pray that you would use our study in the book of Isaiah to purify us. That we would be an awful weapon in your hand like Isaiah was to proclaim your truth to a lost and dying world that needs to hear. And Lord, I would also pray that if there's anyone who joins us in this study that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that they've never been truly saved, Lord, that this beautiful picture and explanation of salvation by grace through faith alone, through the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would be convicted of their sin and that they would turn away from their sin and they would trust Christ alone for their salvation. And they would see people get saved through this study. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to have your way in our midst this spring as we study together this great book. And I pray even now as we leave that our hearts, while we may have been cut to the quick, that we would feel a sense of healing in our hearts and that we would go out of here rejoicing, knowing that you have are in the process of rebuilding us and putting us back together again so that we could be useful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.